Welcome to episode number 51 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and I've got the audio from our Lord's Day service that happened on June 20th, 2021. Now, it's June 29th. I'm a little late getting this one up. It was because I was out of town for most of last week, but it's a doozy. Tyler Hatcher is uh, preaching a fantastic sermon on the fullness of Christ out of Ephesians chapter 1. You are not going to want to miss that. So uh, like most Reformation Roundtable podcasts, I include uh, many parts of our covenant renewal worship at Christ Covenant Church. So I include the meditation, the call to worship, the exhortation, which reminds us of our need to confess our sins, and then there's the confession, uh, and then there's the sermon, and then the uh, Lord's service exhortation, as well as the charge and the benediction. So I hope you enjoy the sermon and the surrounding things that uh, make up our Lord's Day worship. Now, we would love for you to come join us. We'd love for you to come alongside us in bringing uh, robustly and historically reformed theology to Lewis County. This is the first theologically reformed church that Lewis County has had in recent history. Uh, We are thoroughly Trinitarian, we're biblically devoted, uh, and we're historically reformed. And when we get together on Sundays to worship, we are experiencing the glorious majesty of covenant renewal worship. That's where God calls us into his presence. We confess our sins. He He forgives us of our sins. He consecrates us to become more like Jesus. Then he feeds us through communion and he sends us back out into the world and commissions us back out to disciple the nations. And so we would love for you to come join us. We preach exegetically. We have weekly communion. We engage in robust psalm singing, and we really strive and desire Christ-centered fellowship every week and throughout the week. So if that sounds like something you would like to be a part of, come join us. You can find more at lewiscounty.church, or you can just search for Christ Covenant Church uh, in Centralia, Washington, or Lewis County. And so I hope you enjoy the sermon, and I hope you join us for our next Lord's Day worship. As we prepare our hearts for worship, our meditation is going to come from the book of Job. This is chapter 38, verse 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for worship this morning. Cause us to have ears that are quick to hear your voice, mouths that are quick to joyfully sing your praise, and hearts that are soft to give you glory. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the grace and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 135, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O you servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of God, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. Lift up your hearts. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God in heaven, you are high and lifted up. And we are your servants, and we praise your name. You have called us here into your house this morning. 
We come joyfully into the courts of the house of our God because of this great truth. This truth that changes everything, we have been called. Thank you for calling us your special treasure. And thank you for calling us into your presence now. We thank you for this great honor in the name of Jesus who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. In our meditation in preparation for worship, we read that God, having listened to Job's complaints, answers him from the whirlwind, saying, Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. He then asks Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. He asks Job who it was who determined the earth's measurements, who laid the foundation's cornerstone, and who shut the sea with doors and said, Here, your proud waves must stop. Prior to facing the whirlwind, Job felt justified in complaining to God about his circumstances. However, God answered him, and we find that Job was not prepared for what came next, the terror of encountering the overwhelming holiness of God. Job responds to God by saying, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes." Generations later, some fishermen would find themselves crossing a sea filled with proud and tempestuous waves. These waves were dangerous. They might actually die out there on the sea. These fishermen and the many other little boats with them were in dire need of deliverance. Also in the boat with them was Jesus, the very person who was with the Father, When the foundations of the earth were laid and the sea was told, this far you may come, but no further, and here your proud waves must stop. The terrified fisherman woke him from his sleep with a frantic question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Imagine asking the Prince of Glory, the Son of God, do you not care? Jesus got up and rebuked the sea just as his father had done at the dawn of the world. He then turned to his disciples and rebuked them as well, asking them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? These disciples, like Job, had felt justified in their fear and in their complaining to him about their circumstances. They, like Job, felt that maybe God just didn't care about their problems. However, when faced with the power, majesty, and holiness of the Son of God, they too found their mouths unable to respond. Instead, we are told that the disciples feared exceedingly and asked each other, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Christian, fear has no place in the life of those who trust in Christ. He is enough for the problems we face. We must face the hard truth that while we always feel that our fear is justified, it almost never is. Our concern, our worry, our anxiety, dread, trepidation, whatever we call it, it isn't justified. We think, oh, if only you knew. If only you knew how serious my problems are, then you would see I am justified in being afraid. But Christian, this God does know. He knows and he cares. He endured the terrors of Calvary, experienced the horror of the desolation of his own father, 
while he bore every one of our vile sins because he cares. He has stared down the maw of the beast called death, and he didn't blink. Instead, he was victorious and conquered death and rose again. Therefore, we can say without fear, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? We have nothing to fear. Fathers, put away your fear. Mothers, don't fear any fearful thing. Children, Jesus is always with you. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Are you afraid? Confess it to God, for now is the day of salvation. Have you no faith? Confess it to God, for now is the day of salvation. Are your sins as scarlet? Confess them to God, for now is the day of salvation. As you are able. Scripture says, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Pray with me. Father, we confess to you our corporate sinfulness. As a people, Lord, we have sinned grievously against you. We are full of fear. Fear that devours our joy and causes us to stagger under a crushing weight of dread. Fear that causes us to focus our minds and hearts on the wind and the waves instead of the maker with us in the boat. We fear that our kids won't follow after you. We fear that our spouses won't be faithful to us. We fear the economy. We fear the stock market. We fear losing our job. We fear this car breaking down. We fear what other people will think if we say this or if we don't do that. We fear man, change, sickness, poverty. Please, Lord. Forgive us for our sinful fear, we ask. We now confess our own individual sins to you now. We ask all of these things in the good and strong name of Jesus. And amen. Please rise. for Christians, hear the following promise from Scripture. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Would you please remain standing for the reading of God's word as we come to the sermon. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Start in verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you pray with me? Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to see what it has to say. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive it this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned last week, the plan for now is when I come down and have the opportunity to worship with you and preach down here, I'm going to be working through the book of Ephesians. So we're in the second section of chapter one this morning. As one preacher put it, uh, while all of Scripture is full of truth, there is more truth per square inch in Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter of densely packed and concentrated gospel, grace, and truth. All of Scripture is true. All of Scripture is profitable for instruction, for correction, um, for growth in righteousness, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. But there are different parts of Scripture that seem to be slightly more densely packed where you could take a phrase at a time and and spend all kinds of time unpacking it. And Ephesians is very much that way. There is so much in these verses that we're looking at this morning, we're not going to get to everything, and we're not going to try. But that's just something you should know. What I hope to do is that Ephesians would be a book that as we study through it, it's something that then you go back to over and over because there's so much more to mine out of it. Remember that if you look at the very beginning of the book, verse 1, Paul is writing to saints. He says this, he addresses the Ephesians as saints. Now this is not uh, a reference to super-Christians. That's not what saints means. Rather, saints just refers to those who have been declared holy in the name of Jesus. This is something different that um, we would understand than, than the Roman Catholic Church, where they identify particular people as saints because of a particular status that they have in the church. Um, And while we might recognize certain people that have gone before us as um, great examples and we can honor them, um, they are not at a different status before God than we are. We are all, in Christ, saints. And that is something that Paul wants um, the people that he's writing to to hear and to know right from the very beginning. This is an indicative statement like we talked about last week. It is a statement of fact. It is something to be believed. In the second half of chapter one, Paul continues to marvel at the work that God has done in these saints and what he has given to those who believe, to those that he has chosen. So I'd like to, if you have your Bibles open, look with me at the text and we're gonna walk through the text for a short time and sort of paraphrase it, give a couple comments on it and then we'll focus on a few particular parts. So beginning, um, back up a little bit just into verses 13 and 14. Remember that Paul has declared that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of their salvation, of the salvation of those that he's writing to, that God has given to them. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the inheritance that they have received. And because of this, and also because he has heard about the faith of these saints in Christ and their love for the body in verse 15, Paul is prompted to give thanks without ceasing for them. So he says, because of this truth, 
That's why he says, therefore. So therefore, because of all of this truth that you've been chosen by God, you've received an inheritance, you've been given the Holy Spirit as the guarantee, because of all of this, and having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and having heard of your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul prays that the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, verse 17. And having been saved in Christ, Paul desires that they would grow in knowledge, grow in understanding of the hope they have in Christ and of his, of his inheritance in them. You'll notice as you look through this passage, there is lots of words about knowing, knowledge, understanding, enlightenment. Okay, these are all, this is a very uh, strong emphasis that Paul has in this passage. And that fits with what we talked about last week, where the first half of Ephesians is all about things to be believed, credenda, the things we need to know. And the second half is where we get more of the specific application. We see that again here in this passage. Paul wants the people he's writing to, these Christians, he wants you to know certain things. And this knowledge is not just an intellectual knowledge, but it's deeply tied to faith. Because we see, as we see earlier in the, um, in the chapter, verses 12 and 13, it's based on the trust that these people have in Christ. This knowledge, this knowledge is grounded in trust. Paul also prays, so he prays that they would grow in this knowledge and understanding of the hope that they have in Christ, the hope of his calling, and of his inheritance in them. And he also prays that they would all know God's power in us which was also shown in the might of his strength when he raised Jesus from the dead and he gave him authority over all things forever. So God has extended his great power and manifested his power in our salvation. And this was first manifested when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the first manifestation of this or a primary manifestation of God's power. He raised Jesus from the dead to live again, not to die again like Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but to live again forever. Well, this power is the same power that God exhibits when he grants us salvation. And God made all things subject to King Jesus and also set him up as the head over the church, over his body, which Paul says is the fullness of Christ. And so that's the title of my sermon. It's the fullness of Christ. What is this fullness of Christ that Paul says the church is with regards to her Lord? So I want to spend a couple moments, uh, some time now in, in the, for the rest of the sermon focusing on these three things that Paul says that he wants them, these Christians, to know. Look at verse, beginning in verse 18. So his prayer for the Ephesians, his prayer for the saints, is that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and then that they would know certain things. Yeah, these three things that he wants them to know are the hope of Christ's calling. That's number one. Number two, the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance in the saints. And number three, the exceeding greatness of God's power. Paul first prays that God would grant to Christians a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding in verse 18 can be understood simply as our faculties to know things. The eyes of your understanding, your ability to know things, to see things. We, we get this when we're talking to somebody and we're explaining something to them. What do we often say at the end of that time? Do you see this? Do you understand this? That's what we mean by that. Do you see this? 
So Paul prays that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. And in this case, Paul's prayer is that through spiritual wisdom and revelation, believers would see and understand more about this God that has chosen them. Paul wants us, the scriptures want us, to know more about this God that has called us, that has chosen us. This is not a prayer for salvation that Paul gives here. They already have it. He's already identified them as saints. They've already been saved. This is rather a prayer for increased knowledge of God. Knowledge and true wisdom are something that scripture teaches we are to grow up into more and more. So this is something, this is important to see. This is a prayer that Paul gives for Christians. It's not a prayer for their salvation. They've already received that salvation. This is a prayer that they would grow in their knowledge of God. Well, if I'm saved, don't I already have the knowledge of God? Well, yes, but do you know all that there is to know about God? Are you as close to God as you can be? There's so much more for you to grow in your understanding of. And as you grow in your understanding of God, again, this is not just an, just an intellectual knowledge. This is a personal knowledge of God. As you grow in that knowledge, that's one of the means by which God sanctifies you. You come more and more close to this holy God. And what does he do? He more and more sanctifies you. Knowledge and true wisdom are something that scripture teaches we are to grow into more and more. James, in James chapter 1, says that if we lack wisdom, we should ask for it. And he's, in that context, he's specifically talking about in, in suffering or in the face of trials. But if we lack wisdom, and we can extend that to other things beyond just trials or temptations, if we lack wisdom, we should ask for it. So Christians can lack wisdom. Right? We all, we, I think we all know that, but it's helpful to see this. Christians can lack wisdom, and so we are to ask for it. It's appropriate for us to pray for others to grow in wisdom, to pray for our brothers and sisters this way. In the book of Hebrews, at the end of chapter 5, it, um, the author of Hebrews indicates there's a need to grow up more and more into maturity in our understanding of doctrine. And Proverbs is full of exhortations to seek continually after wisdom. The God that we serve is infinite and eternal, and the more we come to know him, the more we uncover, the more we uncover about him and the deeper our fellowship with him, and thus our joy and satisfaction goes. The more we understand about God, the more knowledge of God that he grants to us, the greater our joy, the greater our satisfaction, the closer we come to the Father. Now contrast this, so this is what Paul is asking for, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Contrast this with the humanist enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries and other similar movements that have come. Man was enlightened with what? With knowledge that reason was king and that man was the central point of all things. This was the enlightenment, right? Our eyes were opened. Humanity's eyes were opened so that we could see that man was the center of all things. Forget this God stuff. Man is the center of all things. Reason is king. There's a deep irony here. And the irony is that there actually is a man at the center, or to change the metaphor, at the pinnacle of all created things. Man is at the center of all things, but not mankind, not us. It's the God-man instead. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is king, not reason. 
Jesus, the God man, man, uh, uh, God made man, God who took on flesh, that man is at the center of all things. This is what Paul talks about at the end of this passage, at the end of this chapter. He is, God has placed him far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only now in this age, but in the age to come, both now and forever. So you see this deep irony then in the humanist enlightenment. We think that, oh, our eyes have been enlightened. We see this in secularism today. We think we know everything. We think we understand everything because we think man is the center of all things and his reason is king. But no, in fact, the man is at the center of all things and he is king. Paul goes on to pray, and and this is all in the context then of of Paul praying that we would uh, know the hope of this Christ's calling. This man who is over all things has called us. This God who has created all things and who has set up his son to rule all things has called us. And so Paul prays that this enlightenment in Christ, this knowledge of Christ would grant certainty in the hope of that calling. Can you have certainty in your calling as a Christian? Another way we talk about this is assurance. Can I have assurance? Can I know that I am saved? The scripture teaches that there is certainty, there is knowledge in the hope of your calling. And this hope is not some wishful thinking sort of hope. This hope is a joyful anticipation of the fulfillment of this calling, of the fulfillment of this promise, of this inheritance that God has given to you. And this is, again, rooted in the fact that the the Spirit is the guarantee of that promise. There is great hope that we as Christians have. And this is why in in 1 Peter, the the classic apologetics text, Peter says um, to to all Christians that we should be, be ready, be equipped to defend the faith, to give an apology for our salvation, but primarily for the hope that is in us. Well, what is the hope that is in you? It's a hope in God's calling. It's, it's not in a hope that I'm going to make it to the end. It's not in a hope in my faith. It's a hope in Christ. It's a hope, a hope in his calling and in his work that he has done. This hope that Christians have is a great hope in the salvation of their souls, in the resurrection of their physical bodies, and the everlasting reign of Christ over all things on heaven and on earth. So this is the first thing that Paul prays for these people, that they would know, that they would know the hope of his calling, that there would be certainty in this hope, in this, this joyful anticipation. Paul also prays that we would know the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance. This is something I think that is uh, wonderful and um, odd at the same time, something that we don't often think about. We're familiar with many passages in Scripture that speak of our inheritance, the inheritance that has been promised to us. Paul talks about it earlier in this chapter. But notice that's not the inheritance that he's talking about in verse 18. The last phrase here, in, or last clause in verse 18, that you may know what, the riches, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance is Paul speaking of here? He's not speaking about my inheritance as a believer, although it's wrapped up in this. He's speaking of Christ's inheritance. 
It should strike us that Paul here is not merely calling us to look ahead to our own inheritance. That's what we should know. We should know the riches of our inheritance, although we would all grant that we have a promised inheritance and that it is rich and there is great glory in it. But we need to know something. We need to rest in something about the value of Christ's inheritance, the riches of the glory of this inheritance. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is right after um, we've seen the, the, what's been called the hall of faith, this list of all of these saints that have gone before that, that we look to as examples for us of how they held the faith, kept the faith, went through all kinds of uh, crazy scenarios, trials, tribulations that God brought to them and yet were faithful through them by the grace of God. And so Paul then comes to um, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, giving, given all of that, that God had provided for these people through all these things as they ran their race, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. What is that sin that so easily ensnares us? Well, foundationally, this sin is a lack of faith. What has Paul been talking about, or the author of Hebrews, is talking about in chapter 11? It's the fact that these people had gone before us by faith. By faith, Moses did, this, did such and such. By faith, Abraham did such and such. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Joseph by faith Gideon, by faith Barak. All of these people, they did all of their works by faith. And so what is the sin which so easily ensnares us? There, there may be different applications of this um, beyond this, but foundationally, the sin that so easily ensnares us is our unbelief. Our inability to walk by faith. That's what trips us up. And you know that, Because when you are given to a particular sin, let's say you have some other kind of sin that does ensnare you, something particular that trips you up over and over again. What's behind that? Behind that is a lack of faith. Because behind that is a lack of faith that God is sovereign over these circumstances, that he has provided everything that you need in that moment, that he has provided a means of escape for you in that moment to resist that temptation. It's a lack of faith in the good God and the goodness of God and his love for you. If he has saved you, you're no longer a slave to those sins. And yet we lack faith in the midst of those. This is the sin that so easily ensnares us. But it goes on. Let us lay aside that sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Why? Because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And now here comes the the part that ties into what we're looking at in Ephesians who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We look ahead to Jesus as we run our race, but Scripture says that Jesus went to the cross looking ahead to something as well. We run our race, we carry our cross looking to Jesus, but Jesus went to the cross looking to the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? What was Jesus, when he was on the cross, what was he looking ahead to? 
which caused him to endure the cross, which caused him to to despise the shame of the cross. It was the inheritance that God had set apart for him. Look back at, in, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 16. That one's mine. Psalm 16, verse 6. This is um, a psalm, is a verse that you're probably familiar with. It's a wonderful uh, praise to, to give to God. But this psalm is really, we should understand this psalm as being um, said by Christ. These are, these are the words of Christ. Psalm 16, verse 6 says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. This is what Christ has. He has a good inheritance. What was that inheritance? This inheritance that God has set aside for him, has set apart for him. Psalm 2 tells us the inheritance of Christ is all the nations. What was Jesus looking ahead to when he was on the cross? He was looking ahead to his inheritance. He was looking ahead to what the Father had promised to him, which was all the nations. And so here in, back in Ephesians 1.18, Paul says that this inheritance, Christ's inheritance is in the saints. Look also at, if you're still in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse, verses 1 and 2. This is, again, a psalm that's written by David. But I think it's fitting to see this as a prayer that, God, that Jesus would have been praying while on the cross. How does Psalm 16 begin? Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. We have no uh, exact record of Jesus saying those exact words on the cross, but he said many things like it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And then he goes on, as for the saints who are on the earth, this is what my soul says to the Lord about them, the saints who are on the earth. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. On the cross, Jesus looked past death. He looked past the shame of the cross. And what did he see? He looked ahead to those that he would die for, to the saints, to the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That means he looked ahead to us. That means Jesus, when he was on the cross, looked ahead to you, to his church, to you in spite of all of your sins, in spite of your faithlessness, in spite of your fallings away, in spite of your failures, in spite of that lack of faith that so easily ensnares you. And it was the joy of drawing you to himself and making you holy, making you those excellent ones in whom is all his delight. It was that joy that he looked at as he went into the grave. Do you know this? Do you know this? Scripture says that you need to know this. 
You need to rest in this. You need to know the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance in the saints. Knowing this in turn is part of how God sanctifies you. Because knowing this, knowing that he died for you in this way, enables you to, what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, to reckon yourself dead to sin. Count sin as dead to you. It's, if you're in Christ, it's no longer your master. Day by day, remember what Christ has done. If you've been baptized into Christ, you have died with Christ. And if you've died with Christ and he really did raise, was really raised from the dead, then you are raised to new life in him. That's what Paul's message is in Romans chapter six. You've died with Christ, you've been raised to new life in Christ and therefore reckon yourself dead to sin. Well, how can I do that? Because I know whose I am. Because I know what Christ thinks of me. Not because of any good in me. But I know what Christ thinks of me because of what scripture says. I know that Christ looked ahead, despising the shame of the cross, looking at the joy that was set before him, the joy of his inheritance in the saints. And so as Jesus looked ahead to you through the cross, you now look ahead to him as you bear your cross, knowing that death and sin have been conquered. So these are the first two things that Paul wants these people to know. He wants you to know the hope of God's calling, the hope of Christ's calling. And he wants you to know the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance in you, in the saints altogether, in the church, in his bride. Number three, he wants you to know the exceeding greatness of God's power. The doctrines of grace... Uh, as revealed in Scripture, first give us a right and honest view of ourselves. The doctrines of grace first teach us, as we examine Scripture, we see that it is clear that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We are not worth anything in God's sight apart from Christ. There is no good in us, as the psalm says. We are left to ourselves totally unworthy of any of God's favor. And this is why Paul prays also that we would know God's gracious and glorious power. John Calvin said of this, I'll read a quotation here, that they might not be cast down by a view of their own unworthiness. He exhorts them to consider the power of God. As if he had said that their regeneration was no ordinary work of God, but was an astonishing exhibition of his power. When we understand God's grace, it is easy for us to see our unworthiness. It is easy for us to see how we don't merit his favor, how we can't merit his favor. And yet God does not want us to uh, cultivate what, what, what's been called sort of a worm theology. Right? Oh, I'm such a worm. I'm so worthless. Yes, it's true. But don't stay there. Don't stay there because 
Yes, you are worthless, but you know whom you serve. You know this God that you serve, and you know the exceeding greatness of his power. What kind of power is it? Well, it's the kind of power that raises a man from the dead to live forever. This will set the stage for what Paul articulates in more detail in chapter 2 in Ephesians, that we are dead in our sins, and we need to be made alive in Christ only by faith. We worship the God of heaven and earth who raises the dead. He exhibited this gloriously when Jesus rose from the dead, but he continues to display this power every time he raises a sinner from their death in sin. And he continues to exhibit this power every time he enables a believer to reckon himself dead to his sin and his temptations. When by the grace of God you resist those temptations, you resist that sin that so easily ensnares you, what are you witnessing? You're not witnessing your own strength. You're witnessing the power of God. You're witnessing the power of God working in you and working out of you, but it's the power of God. Do you know this? Do you know both in your salvation and in your growth and in your sanctification, do you know the awesome power of God? Paul concludes his prayer by stating that the mighty power of God in subjecting all things under Christ. He just says it simply. This is the power that God worked when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, made him king, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. If all things have been put under his feet, then he is over everything. Nothing is greater than Christ. This is the, the Lord that we serve. And not only that, that God set Christ, the Father set Christ as head over the church. He is to be head over all things to the church. The church is under Christ, but in a different way than the rest of creation. All things have been placed under Christ's feet, but the church is his body. Paul, this is what Paul says in verse 23. So do you see that difference? Verse 22, God, the Father put all things under the Son's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church who is his body. All things are under Christ's feet and the church is his body. And this is where Paul says something that is puzzling. The church is under Christ as his body, as the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. What does this mean? The Son as the mediator, as the Messiah, as the Christ, is in one sense incomplete without his church. That sounds heretical at first. And so what we're not saying is that in any way God needs his people. I'm not saying that at all. That's not what Paul's getting at here at all. 
It's not true that God created people in order to be, or because he, he lacked something and he needed them. That's more of an Islamic view. Allah creates because he needs to be respected, because he's lacking something, because he's a monad. He's not triune. But our God, the true God, is triune. He lacks nothing. He is complete in his trinity. And it doesn't mean that he saves us because he needed something from us. But having committed himself to being the mediator, having committed himself to saving us, to redeeming us, the word of God cannot be broken. And so then the church is the fullness of Christ, not because we are anything to him in and of ourselves, but because he committed himself to dying for us. There can be no mediator without one to mediate for. There can be no king without a kingdom. The kingdom, his, the, the subjects of the king are what make the king who he is. The subjects of Christ are the fullness of Christ. He's not dependent on us in any way. And yet, at the same time, Paul uses this very strong language that the church is the fullness of Christ. There's a sense in which when Christ committed himself to die for his people, he was committing himself to being incomplete without his church. And sort of like we looked at last week, that's, that's nonsensical. It is impossible for Christ, the Lord of all, to be in any way incomplete. And that is a great promise to his church. Christ cannot be incomplete. And without his church, because he had committed himself to this church, he would be incomplete. And so this is a great promise of the preservation of his people. When he took on flesh, he committed himself to his people, as Paul says in Philippians 1, to complete in them the work that he had begun. Let God be true and every man a liar. This is what Christians need to know. This is what Christians need to believe. This is what Paul prays for the saints. This is what you should pray for one another. This is a wonderful passage in in the end of Ephesians 1 here that you can turn to, that you can open up, and you can pray this for your church. You can pray this for the saints in your life. Use this prayer because this is what people need to know. This is what Christians need to know. And Paul demonstrates that it is fitting for us to pray that they would know these things, that they would know what is the hope of your calling, of Christ's calling for you, that that you would know the rich glory of Christ's inheritance, that when he was on the cross, he looked ahead for the joy set before him, and that joy was you. You are his inheritance, you, the church, the people of God. This is the power of God on display, that he would take us who are dead in our sins, completely worthless in his sight, 
and yet he would change us and make us saints. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your Son. And I thank you for these people here this morning. I pray that they would take these things and that they would know them. Father, I pray that you would give to the people of this church the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ, that the eyes of their understanding being enlightened would know what is the hope of your calling. Father, that they would know what are the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance in them. And Father, that they would know what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your mighty power, which you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and you seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named forever. Father, I pray that this, these people here would know that they are under Christ as his body and that they are the fullness, as the church, they are the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. And amen. After reading in Ephesians about the awesome power of God and the glorious ascension of Jesus above all other principalities and powers, it is stunning when we realize what we are doing here at the Lord's table, at communion. This great and high king has called us to come and eat his meal with him. But this is no ordinary meal. This is a meal where he offers to be united with you and to unite you to him again and again each week by means of bread and wine, body and blood, and through the working of the Holy Spirit. This table, communion, is a mystery. There are many things that are wonderful and sometimes hard to understand. Among those things is simply the fact that we are summoned and warmly invited to come at all. In some instances, this is hard to understand. Why, can G- why would Jesus, this great and high king, invite us? It is none of our deserving, and yet Jesus Christ, your Redeemer and Savior, delights to sit and eat with you. You are his excellent ones, in whom is all his delight. And it was this union and fellowship with you that he saw as the joy set before him when he endured the cross. And so, to all who have been baptized, come and welcome to Jesus. So as you got into this week, remember Jesus is sending you. The commission that he gave to his disciples is to go and disciple the nations This begins by walking yourself in obedience to Christ, and that itself begins by knowing Christ, by knowing him, by resting in what he has done, by knowing the hope of his calling, by knowing the glorious inheritance of uh, his glorious inheritance in the saints, by knowing the greatness of God's power. Rest in those things in all the works that God has set before you to do. Hear now the benediction from your Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.